We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Let's go ahead and turn to the word. We're in Zephaniah this morning. So if you haven't been with us, what we've been doing is going through an overview of the story of Scripture. Those are the symbols up here behind us, uh, down arrow representing creation, that God came down and he actually walked with the humans he created, the representatives that he placed there to care for his good creation. But then those representatives rebelled against him. That's our X second symbol. They rebel against God. They rebel against their call to be representatives of the true king and instead try to take power for themselves. And so there's a forward arrow next because God comes and he doesn't give up. He doesn't just squash him right then and there like he could, but he gives a promise. He gives a promise that he would restore the goodness of his creation that he put in it and that he would do that even through the humans who had messed it up, that one day a rescuer would come, right? And so most of our Old Testament Bible lies in those three symbols and the bulk of it in this third one here of God's people awaiting for this promise to come. And so what, we, what we've seen throughout the story so far is God called a particular person to start a particular family in order to build a particular nation, not just for them and their own sake, but they would be blessed to be a blessing to others, that they would be a kingdom of priests, he says, a royal priesthood, which would actually show the rest of the world what this good God is like and invite them to come be a part of it, right? And that they would, they would actually be working for God's mission in partnership with him as a light to the nations so others could see. And what we've seen over and over throughout that story is that things don't pan out so well, do they? Do you guys, does anyone in here have uh, any familiarity with soap operas like daytime soaps? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna admit it right now, time of confession, I had a little season where I would watch daytime soaps. This is actually in high school. Uh, and I, <laughs> I would go to my mom's for part of the summer, and she was working like three jobs, and I had like no friends around because I didn't normally live in that area. I lived with my dad, and I was like, what do I do? And there's nothing on TV. I already got through Gilligan's Island and Happy Days. So what else is there? Days of our lives, right? Now, here's the thing about soap operas, if you're not familiar with them, is I haven't watched it since then, since high school. I'm not going to tell you how long it's been, but it's been a while. I could turn on that show and they're probably still having the same plot line running right now, all right? It's probably the same exact thing going on. Stefan and Gloria are still engaged, uh, but Gloria still has this secret romance with Stefan's twin, Greg. I don't know what they named him, Greg and Stefan, but I'm making these names up, you guys. But it's the same thing over and over again because they spend like hours and hours of just like zooming in on a look like, you know, and they just like, they zoom in and have this dramatic music and that's soap operas. So there's a running joke of soap operas. You can just like not watch it for a couple of years. It's the same thing happening. You didn't miss anything. And that's kind of what's going on with Israel. So hundreds and hundreds of years into the story and it's the same story. God comes and rescues them. And he says, I'm your God, you're my people. You be my representatives and I'll be a good king for you. You don't need a human king, Right? And then they're like, okay, cool. We'll do everything you say, God. And then they see these other nations, the ones they're supposed to be an example to. And they start going, hey, 
we want to worship their gods and we want to have a human king like they do. And they start rebelling against their God and following this pattern of worshiping other gods and other nations and then asking for a human king. And that human king would rebel too and he would lead them all astray. And they'd find themselves in trouble because what God would do is go, okay, fine. If you really want to serve this nation and their gods, I'll let you serve them. And this nation would come in and take them into captivity. And then they'd cry out to God again, God, where are you? Won't you come rescue us? Aren't we your people? As if God were the problem. So then God would come and he would rescue them. And the pattern just repeats over and over and over again. And so where we find ourselves this morning in the book of Zephaniah, which if you don't know where that is, here on my Bible, like you grab about that much, right? And turn over. Uh, It's right after the book of Habakkuk. And you're like, that's not helpful at all. I know, I apologize. Uh, Micah is before that. We're we're in what's called the minor prophets. It's not because they were less important prophets. It's because the books are shorter. So you gotta be careful how fast you're turning those pages and you can miss Zephaniah. It's only three chapters. We're gonna just kind of get an overview picture of what's going on there. And what happens is Zephaniah, he is living in Judah, the southern tribe of Israel, because Israel had gotten such a hot mess that they had a civil war with each other and they split into two kingdoms. And at this point, the northern kingdom of Jerusalem had already come and been taken over by the nation of Assyria. They were worshiping the Assyrian gods already anyway, and God hands them over. And so now in this southern tribe, or the southern kingdom, you got the kingdom of Judah. And in this area, what's going to happen soon is they'll be taken over by a nation as well called Babylon. But it hasn't happened quite yet in the story. There's a couple prophets who are people that God sent to just give a word from him to his people, all right? And so prophecy wasn't always like uh, future telling, right? It wasn't like this like wizard who would come and be like, I could see in the future. Like sometimes there would be things that were going to happen in the future, but it was always for the purpose of telling and showing God's people how to live now. And so Zephaniah lived during this time of another prophet you might know better named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a prophet who said, hey, Babylon's coming and they're gonna take us captive. There's nothing you can do about it. There'd be some other false prophets try to tell the king, no, 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 we're good, we're safe, don't worry about it. And Jeremiah would be like, no, God said, Babylon's coming. Discipline is coming on us because we have been unfaithful. There's nothing you can do to stop it, but here's how you live through it. And we're actually gonna look at Jeremiah next week and see what his word from God was to say, how do you live in Babylon as a faithful people? Uh, But Zephaniah was there around the same time, right? And so he was also saying, this is coming. This is coming. Not only is Babylon coming, but destruction is coming because you have rebelled against God. It's a, it, this is a harsh setup, right? If you were listening and you heard Bethany read from our, our text in Zephaniah chapter three, the last chapter, you're like, wait a second. What? This, this seems like a different story because the words that she read was that God would sing over you with rejoicing, right? Now, I don't know about you guys. I love to sing when no one else is around. Uh, I'm not very good at it. And so growing up, when I would go to church with my dad, there would be occasionally we would go to like a Southern Baptist church and we'd sit there in the pews or we'd stand there in the pews. 
And then my dad would always look over at us, me and my brothers, and he'd be like, hey, sing, sing. Because we would just sit there with our hands in our pockets, like waiting for the songs to end, you know? And he'd be like, sing. And he would look so angry. We're like, okay, okay, we'll sing. So then we learned the trick that you just mouth watermelon over and over again. And then I found out later, like, that's his least favorite part of going to church as well is singing. So I was like, you hypocrite. <laughs> but we all are. So I was like, you're, you're making us sing. I, and I didn't want to sing because I have a terrible singing voice. And then Bethany and I, when we were dating and when we were engaged, she told me one time, I think, you, I think you have a pretty good voice. You could actually be a singer if maybe you had some training. And I was like, really? Okay. No, 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 no. Hey, you don't get to talk. I have the microphone right now. I'm going to hear that one later. Okay. She said, I, I think you might be able to sing. And then I sang in front of her one time. It was like the most vulnerable thing I've ever done. And she was like, no, I was wrong. <laughs> All right, I'll let you tell your story later. But it went something like that. And uh, so, yeah, I, not a singer, right? Not a singer. That's why I tried my hand at freestyle rapping for a while. And that's why I speak now. Not a singer at all. But I love singing. Like, I, I love, don't, don't you love, like, especially when it's a song you love and it, like, it gets you in all the feels. It's emotional, you know? Or, like, it just, it, it kind of gets you in that mood, right? If no one's around, you just want to belt it out, Right? I'm not going to lie. There's been some times in the car by myself, I've been belting out some Adele. Like, it's just good stuff. So you, there's something in you that wants to sing, but we're commanded to sing to God because God is so glorious, so wonderful, that when we actually do look upon him, when we actually see how good he is, there's something inside your heart that will stir you to want to sing. But how incredible is it on the flip of that, that we hear that God himself sings over us with rejoicing, sings over his people with rejoicing, that there's something that just stirs God when he sees his creation and the people that he's called for himself that just wants to sing and rejoice. So here's the problem. Here's the question. How do we get from Zephaniah coming saying, hey, you're all a hot mess and judgment's coming. Babylon's coming in to destroy us. To God wants to sing over you with rejoicing. Like something has to make a turn in between those moments, right? So let's explore that. So in Zephaniah, this is what it starts with. Chapter one, uh, I'm just gonna read a little excerpt from here. So Zephaniah comes, he's actually, it gives us in the first verse, his lineage, and he comes from a royal line. So actually his like great, great grandfather was a king. And so he comes from that line. He's not just any other prophet, um, but he comes with the word of the Lord. And this is what he says that the Lord says in verse two of chapter one, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish of the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal, worship in this place, and the very names of the idolatrous priests 
those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, but also swear by Molech, which is an Assyrian God, and those who turn back from the following of the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. This sounds like total destruction, right? But it doesn't stop there. If we kept going all the way through the end of chapter one, chapter two, the judgment isn't just on Judah, just on Jerusalem. It's on Babylon as well. The nation that's coming to bring discipline and judgment, that God's doing that through. It's almost as if God says, yeah, I know they're wicked too. It doesn't seem fair that they're gonna be the victors here, right? Don't worry, their day is coming also because they're also worshiping these false gods. But I'm starting with my people because you know me. You know better and you willingly chose to worship their gods. So he first brings judgment on his own people. Then you hear throughout Zephaniah, judgment will come on Babylon. It's eventually gonna come on the whole nation. And what we hear in chapter two is this, this promise of something coming called the day of the Lord. That the day of the Lord would come and it would sweep away, as we heard, every living creature on the earth. Now, that's something that has caused a lot of questioning. It sparked a lot of the imagination throughout centuries, throughout generations, this day of the Lord, right? Uh, And if we look at it, we go, Zephaniah, back in this day, said that God said there would be a time where he would bring judgment on the whole earth. And it didn't happen in their lifetime. And it didn't happen even when Jesus was born. And it didn't happen even when Jesus died and then he rose again. Like, there's still lots of wickedness on the earth, is what I'm trying to say. So thousands and thousands of years later, we're still standing here. But why would Zephaniah share this with the people? Not so that they could know about something that would happen thousands of years after they're already gone and could do nothing about it, but so that it would shape how they live here and now. And this word is still here. It's been preserved throughout those generations so that you and I can hear, how do we live as God's people even here and now? Because the day of the Lord is coming. Now, what does that mean? This idea of the day, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord was actually first brought up by Israel as a day of salvation. It was a day of judgment too on those who were doing wicked, but it was salvation for them. It was the day that God rescued them out of Egypt, that he brought them across the Red Sea. And when they made it safely across the sea by God's powerful, mighty hand parting the waters, and Egypt followed after them and he removed his hand and he allowed the chaotic sea to swallow them up, they refer to this as the day the day the Lord saved us. This was not doom and gloom for those who are in God, but this was hope. This is something they look back on with remembrance, with fondness, and they would say, we need to tell our children about this so that they could believe and hope in a good God who is powerful and who will rescue us throughout the generations. And so you would now have prophets coming and saying, hey, another day, of the Lord is coming. Another day of the Lord will come. And in that, there is judgment on the wicked for salvation of what is righteous and holy. The only problem is now, at the time of this telling, Israel 
was the wicked. Israel, they, they, they cast their lots in with the wicked. They, were, they tied their arms with them. They were partnering with the wicked. So when judgment comes on the wicked, guess what, Israel? You're there. You're getting swallowed up by the chaotic waters of judgment. This is the problem. But let's, let's hear those words again, though. I'll sweep away everything from the face of the earth declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. Here's where if we know the whole story of God, that there's actually a little hint of hope in that. Because the way that that's worded is the exact same way in Genesis 6 that it's worded when the flood comes. Right? It's the same exact order that God starts with first Noah and his wife and his family, you people, humans, getting on this boat of rescue. And then it goes to the animals and then the birds. In that same order, this is mentioned. Man and beast and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. It goes in the same order. Coincidentally, that order is backwards from the moment of creation in Genesis 1. So many scholars think what happens with the flood, the reason it's told backwards is it's this decreation moment that God, first he, he parts the waters, right? Of the, the waters above, the waters below, if you read Genesis 1, and he puts, he fills it with the fish, the sea creatures. Then he puts birds in the sky in this opening he created between the waters. They could thrive there. Then he puts animals, beasts on the land, and then finally humans this creature that's distinct from all the rest to represent God to the rest. That's the order of Genesis. That's the order of creation. So when Genesis 6 comes and there's a flood to wipe away everything, there's a reversal, a decreation moment, just like God letting his hands go from that sea and the chaotic waters come crashing over again. Here's where there's a hint of hope. What happened? God rescued a few. Not because they were anything special in themselves, but because he had a plan that he had not given up on. Noah, in your family, you will be my representatives. You will show creation what I'm like. You will care for this earth, care for the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. You will be fruitful and multiply, and you will show the rest of the world how good the creator is. Well, they messed up time and time again. So we're seeing that same moment here. God coming to Israel and going, we're, we're doing this all over again. It's the same soap opera running over and over again. So you get this decreation moment, the reverse order of creation in Genesis 1. Judgment is coming. But if you know the story, you're going, wait a second. Maybe there will be a hope. Maybe there will be a remnant like God saved Noah and his family. Maybe there will be a few from Israel that God would rescue. And that's what we find in, Je in Zephaniah 3. So let's go back there. I want to reread what Bethany read. Zephaniah 3. Starting in verse 14. Now this is after... God had been talking so much through Zephaniah of destruction, judgment. It's coming. You can't escape it. But 
is what he says, sing, daughter Zion. There should be something that stirs in you to sing. No matter how terrible of a voice you have, sing. Why? Why? Because hope is coming. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Like if you're hearing that at first, you're going, you just told me you're going to destroy me. Really? He says, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Do you hear this loving language God has for his people as a father, as a parent, as a caregiver, as, as not just an authority ruling in the sky, but an intimate connection with his people, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has done what? Verse 15, taken away your punishment has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, the day of the Lord, the day of destruction, right? Chapter two is talking about the day of the Lord being this harsh destruction. But he says, no, on that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Something should stir in our hearts to sing because this great love of a great, perfect God is stirred to sing over us. And what changed in there? Did did Israel somehow get their act together between Zephaniah 1 and 2 and Zephaniah 3? No, Babylon still comes, spoiler alert. Judgment still comes. They still continue to worship false gods and want to be like the other nations. But there is a small remnant, that means a little, a little portion of them, who stay faithful to God. The question is, how do they do it, right? And this is where we, we get to this and we go, okay, so how do we, how do we do that? How do we stay faithful to God when it seems like nobody else is, right? And, and what do we do? What do we just got to try harder at? Listen, the key in this is not that these few people did something different. It's not that they obeyed better. Pretty much all of Israel was guilty of worshiping other gods. The key in this is they knew it. They knew it, they saw it, and they turned. I want to read to you something we read this morning. Sorry, I don't have it on the screen. I wasn't planning to. Uh, this morning in our prayer time, which we pray at 9.30, by the way, everyone's always welcome to join us. But in Psalm 136, some of you may be familiar with this passage. The last half of Psalm 136 talks about uh, the love of the Lord being faithful and steadfast. It's that song you might have heard. I think it, this was like third day. If you were around in the, the church in the 90s or early 2000s, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, right? Uh, I think someone else did the song before then, but they became famous for it. So your love reaches to the heavens. Was it Psalm 136 we read this morning? Psalm 36. Thank you, Bethany. Psalm 36. Okay. Starting in verse five, your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies, your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. Your, you, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's beautiful, beautiful about God's love. But hold on, if we back up, 
we cut off the first four verses. This is the part no one sings about. I have a message from God, verse one, in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In their eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. You know what sat with me? In their own eyes, they flatter themselves. Too much to detect or hate their sin. I'm a pretty good person. I don't do those things, right? Like, in, in their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their own sin. And this is the difference between the wicked facing judgment in Zephaniah 3 and the remnant who are seen righteous. The difference is seeing your own heart as it really is. Seeing your true self, being honest with your mess and being humble about it. Humbly coming back to the Lord and saying, I am a wreck and I am in need. And this is all the prophets of Israel were all trying to say, the ones who were being faithful to what God told them to say. Repent, humble yourselves, turn back to God, recognize you need him. You need the one who saved us on that great day out of Egypt. You need the one who is going to rescue us out of Babylon one day. You need him. Stop fooling yourselves. Stop flattering yourselves so much to think you're above it, to think you're, you're pretty good. You've got your stuff together. Humble yourselves with fear of the Lord. And when you do that, you, re, you realize you have a reason to sing because you have a God who is right there just waiting for you to turn back to him, to love you, to open up his arms, and he sings over you. He rejoices over you. He is a mighty warrior who comes and fights on your behalf. And so this, this message of Zephaniah that judgment would come, we, we haven't seen it in its fullness yet, but he also said a rescue would come. And they didn't see that in its fullness yet either. A mighty warrior who would come and save you when you turn back and recognize you need saving. And that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus, this mighty warrior, this is what the, the Israelites were expecting was there to be this king, Messiah, this mighty warrior who would ride in on a steed and do battle with Rome because at that day they were imprisoned again. Remember that soap opera repeats itself. It was no longer Babylon, it was Rome. And then this Messiah, king, warrior, rescuer, the mighty one who saves from Zephaniah 3 would come and rescue us from the Roman Empire. And Jesus instead rides in on a little donkey into Jerusalem. Jesus instead is this man who says he had no place to rest his head. He is homeless. Jesus instead was this man who had nothing fancy about him on the outside that anyone would look at him and go, oh, we want to follow this guy. Jesus instead of violence and the sword comes with peace. The mighty one who saves rescues us with his unrelenting love. He rescues us with his rejoicing over his people. And instead of coming in violently, 
that day of the Lord, that day of judgment that's just gonna sweep away. Instead, he comes and he gives himself up to the violence. That Jesus allows death, the result of our rebellion and our wickedness, to swallow him up. Because from there, from there he shows his true power. That the same God who created things at the beginning who promised this kind of decreation would come because of our wickedness, recreating again, this, this recreation moment that the spirit of God that ho- hovered over the waters of creation breathed back into this body of Jesus and he rose out of the tomb, out of sin, out of death, out of our rebellion victoriously. One day, the day of the Lord, it's coming again, Jesus returns. Guess what? The same story of Zephaniah will be told again. There's going to be some who are swept away in judgment, and there's going to be a remnant who are saved and who sing with rejoicing. What is the difference? Do you really believe you need this mighty warrior rescuer, the one who overcame death and sin? Do you really believe you need Jesus to come and rescue you and save you? Or is it just throw up a couple prayers here and there when I'm in a tight spot? Show up on Sundays. Maybe give a little money. Like, oh, that's great. All right, keep doing it, sure. Maybe I'll, I'll read my Bible here and there. I'm a good person. Don't flatter yourself so much that you can't see the need in your heart. God, would you help us to see our need? We are in desperate need of a rescuer to come and save us. And we thank you that that is found in Jesus, the King, the Messiah. We thank you that we have a reason to sing now and rejoice, God, because your son lovingly opened his arms, singing and rejoicing over us. Not because there is anything special or significant about us, but because we are your creation who you deemed good and you have not given up on your plan to restore and renew. We thank you, God, that one day those of us who are in Christ, we get to rejoice in singing forever with you singing over us, feasting with you, dwelling with you, caring for creation alongside you. God, may we look forward to that day with hope and anticipation instead of fear. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.